On Monday, my family celebrated Adoption Day. It was the sixth anniversary of uh, Leo and Andy officially joining our family. And in God's perfect providence, this also happens to be the week when Galatians introduces the concept of adoption as it relates to our relationship with God. And so I've had the pleasure of reflecting on all of this this week. If you remember last Sunday, we talked about the purpose of the law. The Apostle Paul teaches that formerly the Jewish people were enslaved under the law. He, he says it was their guardian until the promise of God was fulfilled in Jesus. And so before we begin reading, I want to just pause and explain the difference between legal guardianship and adoption because it worked very much the same in the ancient Roman Empire as it does today. Guardianship, then and now, is temporary. In ancient times, the guardian was appointed over the child and was typically a servant or even a slave, whereas, of course, today it's usually a relative or a foster parent. But when the child becomes an adult, the rights of the guardian are completely terminated, which means there's no lasting legal relationship between a guardian and a child. That's how it was then. That's how it is now. Adoption, however, is much more permanent. In fact, you may not know this, but in most states, adoption cannot be reversed at all unless there was fraud. So you can legally divorce a spouse. You cannot legally unadopt a child. So much so that when you adopt, they even change the names on the child's birth certificate to match the adoptive parents. The Apostle Paul borrows this idea of guardianship to explain our relationship with the law and then adoption to explain our relationship with God in Christ. Okay, so that I want, that's a helpful background that you need to kind of understand to know what's going on. So chapter 3, beginning in verse 26, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So before he gets to the idea of adoption, he sets again the context. You are all sons of God. How? In Christ and through faith. And that's important because sometimes adoption gets maybe a little too much emphasis, if that's possible. It's an important doctrine, but union with Christ is much more fundamental. 
Adoption is really one of many blessings that are possible because of our union with Christ. Okay, so I just want to say that before we dive in here. So verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now I want to be careful with this verse because some Christians interpret this to mean that water baptism is necessary for salvation. But if you remember Paul's purpose in the letter, he's arguing that the sign of circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Okay? It seems impossible that Paul would now be implying that baptism is necessary for salvation, especially when he argues that baptism replaces circumcision in Colossians 2. So he's not saying that. Instead, what Paul is saying is that this outward sign of baptism is demonstrating an inward reality. Being baptized into Christ practically means, we believe, joining the visible family of God, which is the church. So he's saying we have put on Christ, meaning... We're now dressed for the part, the the role of being a son or daughter of God. I like to think of it as it's like a wedding ring, right? I'm not married because I'm wearing a ring. I'm wearing a ring because I'm married, okay? This ring doesn't make me married. It just tells people that I'm married. Baptism is a lot like that, okay? So... Verse 28, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Let me just preface this, and it's also why our sign says uno en Cristo, one in Christ. It comes from this verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Literally, he says, we are all one person. We are one person in Christ Jesus. So he's speaking about unity, and this is incredible unity. And why are we one? He says, because we share the same faith, the same baptism, going back to verse 27, we have together put on the same Christ. And I want you to know this verse is one of the most powerful statements in the history of the world, and it was way before its time. Speaking into the the context of the ancient Roman Empire, and all the divisions that historically existed between different groups of people, especially the class divisions that still exist today, this was a very powerful, very novel statement. We are united in such a way, Paul is saying, that typical barriers in society 
have no power over God's church. We are children of God first. We are united in Christ first. In other words, we are Christians before we are anything else. But I want to be clear. These distinctions still matter. Okay? In isolation, you read this verse and it's often quoted as if it's erasing all distinctions between people entirely. But we know from context that can't be what Paul means because in this letter he addresses Jews and Gentiles as separate groups of people. So the Jews were still Jews. The Greeks were still Greeks. Part of his argument is is that you don't have to let go of that to be part of the church. Men were still men. Women were still women, right? He addresses those groups in many of his letters separately. Some Christians were still slaves, right? So what then does Paul mean? I think he means to say that being united in Christ is our primary distinction. It is above everything else. Everything else comes second. For instance, I am not a white Christian. I'm a Christian who also happens to be white. Do we understand the difference? In other words, my whiteness is far less important than my faith. Do we believe that, brothers and sisters? Do we believe that? You see, I don't decide who I worship with or don't worship with based on categories that the world has established, that sin has created. My faith in Christ is more important to me than my culture. And this is something that our neck of the woods, as they say, really needs to hear. Sunday morning is still the most segregated time of the week for American Christians because other things have become more important than our union in Christ. We, in this room, we are not white Christians, black Christians, Latino Christians. We are Christians. We are one in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting, to borrow the popular social term, I'm not suggesting colorblindness, okay? The gospel does not erase our ethnicity. It's about where we find our primary sense of belonging. I'm not a social label in this room. I'm a child 
of God. I'm a human being. And so are you. What God says is true of us matters far more than what the world says is true of us. Amen? I'm also not a victim. Listen to what Paul says next. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, I cannot possibly overstate this. Christians, bear with me on this, Christians are not victims. Let me say this again. Christians are not victims. We are heirs. We are heirs with Christ Jesus, heirs of God's kingdom. All the promises of God for His children, we get those promises. That's who we are. That's why we worship. Now listen, of course, bad things happen to us. You have a story. I have a story. I am not trying to diminish the pain or the hurt that you may have experienced in the past. We're going to address some of that this morning. Suffering is also part of the Christian life because the world hates Christ. Paul himself, who wrote these words, he experienced shipwrecks and beatings and discrimination and all manners of persecution for his faith. And yet Paul was no victim. He did not think of himself that way. Why? Because Paul knew the promises of God were for him. He believed those promises. He didn't believe he had earned those promises or that he was entitled to those promises. And yet, he trusted God to follow through on what God said God was going to do. Look at how he explains this. This is chapter 4 now, verse 1. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He's saying that an inheritance can't be accessed by a child until the child becomes an adult. Until then, a child is practically no different from a slave. And in Roman society, that's how it worked. Children had basically the same rights as a slave. And then everything changed when they reached adulthood. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's repeating here what we studied last Sunday that 
they were under the law, right? Under the law, God's people were enslaved under the conviction of sin. Just as elementary school lays a foundation for greater learning, the Old Testament was laying a foundation for God's plan to be fulfilled in the future. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. These two verses are incredibly rich. We actually did this as an Advent series a while back. It's, um, it's a summary of the gospel message, right? It tells us when Jesus came, who He was, what He accomplished, and why He did it. <clears throat> He's saying at, at just the right time, at the perfect moment, God sent Jesus. And sprinkled all over these verses are reminders that this is not a man-made gospel. This is something God did. This is something God invented, right? Because this is just not the way humans do things. Only God would do it this way. The origin stories of other religions were written during or after the lifetime of one person, right? Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith. Not the gospel. In fact, God had spent a few thousand years preparing His people, preparing the world for His Son before His arrival. Generations upon generations leaving no doubt in my mind that God had to write this story. People didn't invent this religion. I mean, things like, he says, born of a woman. We're talking about the virgin birth, right? Not even Joseph would have believed that if not for divine intervention. Nothing explains why the disciples of Jesus were willing to die for this story, except that maybe it it wasn't the story. It was the truth. They really believed that Jesus carried the curse of the law. That He was crucified for their sin. That He conquered death. And that He redeemed the children of God. And why does He do this, Paul says? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, if you are a child of God, If you are a child of God, then you will know it. Because God will seal that knowledge with the presence of His Spirit 
And he says our hearts will cry out to the Father the way the heart of Jesus cries out to His Father. Papa. Daddy. And one of the most important ways that you can know whether or not your faith is genuine, if you're really a Christian, is do you relate to God as Father? Do you talk to Him as Father? Or do you, as we talked about last week, do you see Him as kind of the policeman in the rearview mirror waiting for you to mess up? If that's how you see God, then you don't know God. If He's your Father, then God has put the Spirit of the Son in your heart and He cries out, Father. You see that? Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Bible describes our salvation in many different ways, but this is perhaps the most personal and the most precious way that God describes the blessing of being in Christ. And I want to focus on this for a few moments because it's especially true today when in our, in our period of history, our time, our place, it's true today when so many people, so many people have terrible or even non-existent relationships with their earthly fathers. And I, I know it's Mother's Day, but this is our text, and I want to focus on this for just a moment. The failures of men in our culture to stay and love their children is a crushing blow to society, and it is having and will have a devastating impact on our future. It's a big deal. But this is where we find hope. This is it. This is the most important thing that we can hear to address that problem. Because we, no matter what we do, we can't make men stay, right? Hearts have to change. And in fact, this was always part of God's plan. Did you know that 42 times in the Old Testament, God speaks directly to people known as the fatherless? Did you know that? And with so many in our community and even in our church who struggle with this identity of being the fatherless, I want to clearly connect these dots for us, okay? When Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke to him directly. And this is what he said. He said, this, Jesus comes up out of the water and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's he saying? 
He's saying the three things that every son desperately wants to hear from his own father. You're my son. I'm claiming you, right? You're not somebody else's son. You're my son. And I love you. And I'm proud of you. Those are the three things that the father says to the son. And guys, if we don't get that, it leaves a deep wound. So Jesus heard those words, but do you know what happens immediately after that? This is Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Immediately Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so how's that for a parting gift, right? God the Father comes up baptized, beautiful moment, right? You're my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. Now go to the desert and battle the enemy. Also don't eat. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, right? That's the understatement of the year. Verse 3, And the tempter, that's the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Jesus responds to that statement with Scripture. We're not going to read it, but three times Satan tempts Jesus, and each time Jesus resists the temptation by quoting Scripture. But I want you to look more closely at the words of Satan in verse 3. The real strategy was not to tempt a hungry man with food. That's too simple. The real strategy, and he repeats it again in a moment, but the real strategy was to sow doubt in the mind of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, in other words, is that really who you are? Prove it. Prove it to me. Eh, he said it. Prove it. Now Jesus had just heard the voice of His Father in heaven. And that's exactly what Satan attacks. Prove to me you're the Son of God. And I want you to know Satan is still doing that to us. You don't belong to anyone. No one cares about you. No one loves you. No one is proud of you. 
Nobody wants you. Nobody claims you. Oh, you think they do? Prove it. Prove it to me. And with sad and angry hearts, so many people, so many men hear those lies and they crumble. Or they spend their whole lives trying to prove it. And guys, here's the good news. If the gospel is true, if, if I can be united to Christ Jesus by faith, then everything God says of Jesus is also true of me. Because of my union with Christ. That's what adoption means. It says, I have a Father in heaven who claims me as His own. He loves me. He's proud of me. Not because of my righteousness, but because of Christ whom I'm united to. I belong to Him. And because I belong to Him, I belong with His people. You belong here. We claim you because He claims us. And so what I'm telling you, what the Scriptures are telling you, what God is telling you, you don't have to be an orphan. You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to be fatherless. You don't have to be alone. Everything true of Jesus is now true of every single one of God's adopted sons and daughters. With my wife's permission, I would like to close by reading part of the Facebook post that she wrote this week to celebrate Adoption Day. She says, Today is a day to celebrate how we became a family of six, but also to allow room to feel all the feelings of today, of the many things gained, but also many lost that shattered hearts can feel the cracks and broken places and simultaneously feel the places Jesus is healing back together. Adoption is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, of being adored and chosen and brought into a family. And it's more beautiful in contrast to the depths of the brokenness we pray that our children see and understand how their own story is a beautiful contrast of hardship and hope and that Jesus shines all the more brightly and receives all the glory and honor and praise. God writes every good story. Brothers and sisters, 
we are no longer slaves, but children. And if we are children, then we are heirs through God. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you give each and every person in this room the tremendous grace, the tremendous blessing to believe that that is true. That none of your children are fatherless. And even for those in this room that only know you as Father, it is enough because we are heirs of a kingdom with Christ Jesus, our great brother, your only son. But you have worked it out so that we can be part of the family. Not because we've earned it, not because we're entitled to it, but because you set your love upon us before the foundation of the world and you called us to yourself. And so, Father, this morning, would we hear the words that Jesus heard by your Spirit in our hearts? Would we hear the words, This is my son, my daughter, whom I love. In them I am well pleased. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.